If you are looking to elevate your leadership and drive your nonprofit forward, I invite you to subscribe to the Successful Nonprofits newsletter. Every week, I curate exclusive shareworthy content that sparks inspiration, innovation, and conversation. From the latest trends to timeless advice, the weekly email newsletter is your all-access pass to a treasure trove of resources. But receiving the newsletter is not just about staying informed. It's also about getting our best content first. Subscribers get first access to our newest downloadable templates designed to propel your leadership and amplify your impact. And that's not all, my friend. We are constantly working on new ways to support you and your mission. So as a subscriber, you'll get updates on our latest projects, opportunities to participate in surveys, and a say in the topics that we tackle next. You will essentially get me as a consultant, coach, and confidant in your inbox, ready to help you navigate the challenges of nonprofit leadership. So if you're an executive director, board chair, or a nonprofit leader who believes in making a difference, join me as a newsletter subscriber. Visit SuccessfulNonprofits.com forward slash newsletter to sign up today. And now, friend, let me take you to the episode you've downloaded. Welcome to the Successful Nonprofits Podcast. I'm your host, Dolph Goldenberg. Today's episode, friends, is one that you will definitely get a lot out of. We are going to be talking about making the case for unrestricted funds with Nicholas Turner. Nick Turner is the president and director of the Vera Institute of Justice, which is one of the largest and most established justice reform organizations in the United States. He is also president of Vera Action, which is Vera's 501c4 sister organization. In 1995, Nick joined Vera Institute of Justice as an intern, and in 2013, Nick, who was Black and Filipino, became the first person of color appointed to be their president and director of the organization. Under his leadership, Vera is piloting and scaling projects to end the overcriminalization and mass incarceration of people of color, immigrants, and people experiencing poverty. And as I am sure you can imagine, unrestricted funding has played a critically important role in his ability to steer the organization through these changes. Hey, Nick, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Dolph. I'm really happy to be here. Well, thank you. And I, I know every chief executive has their own story about how they came to lead their organization. I'm hoping you'll share yours. Sure. Well, if I were to go into the way back machine, and you mentioned this in the introduction, my my very first contact with Vera was as a law student intern in, in 1995. I spent six weeks here and um, fell in love with the place. I had been introduced to the organization by law professors of mine who I hadn't known it at the at the time, but had been trustees of the organization, and they turned me on to it. And I just kept Vera in my you know, in my uh, viewfinder. And so as a as a young attorney, um, I joined about two years after graduating law school, spent close to a decade at Vera, then went off into philanthropy myself for about six or seven years, and then came back to to run the organization as the the fifth president. What was that like coming back into Vera Institute of Justice? Well, it 
on one hand, it was like coming home. And I remember that one of my colleagues baked a nice chocolate cake for my first day that said, welcome home, Nick. And I remember interviewing with the search committee. And that was a process where there were a number of board members who were who were new, who did not know me, but there were a few who did know me. And that turned out to be a, a really important balance because one of the things that I tried to convey to the search committee was that it was important for Vera to to evolve as the outside environment, as the political environment and the demographic environment we were operating in was changing. And that it was a institution that I held great esteem for and cared about. And I think they trusted me as a, both as a steward and then as a bit of a change agent, although I don't think I saw myself at that time as a change agent. I remember they asked me two questions. They said, what is your strategic plan for Vera? And I, my answer to them was that I thought it was premature for me to articulate a strategic plan while I was still in the interview process that I needed to, if I were to be so lucky to run the organization, I would need to spend time getting to relearn it. Real quick. That's the perfect answer to that question. I often hear search committees ask ED candidates that, and I'll be sitting in the back of the room and think, how How in the world could they have a plan? Anyway, sorry for interrupting. That is the perfect answer. Well, I appreciate you saying that. It's a really tough answer to give. And I was at that time, I was a little bit worried that it was the wrong answer because everyone asks you, what's your big idea? What's the next big thing you're planning? And we're, we're often asked when we either are executive directors or want to be executive directors, we're presumed to be visionaries and to have some dramatic, very impressive view of what we want to turn an organization into. And I, I was carrying that with me and worried that I would actually sound unprepared. But what I told them was, look, I, I don't yet know what the right strategic direction is for the organization, but here's what I do know. We are operating in a world in which the politics of criminal justice have started to transform. We are seeing right and left alliances come together. We are going to be a what I called a majority-minority country in three decades where uh, white people in this country would, would be in the minority, and that would have huge consequences for the work that we're doing because addressing over-criminalization and mass incarceration matter so much because of the way the criminal legal system and the immigration system burdens black and brown people. And I also said, we're going to be a country that you're seeing massive shifts of people moving into metropolitan regions and sort of an emptying out of rural areas. And that will have an effect. And so if the world is changing, we're going to have to change somewhat. And the second question they asked me, and this relates to Vera being a, a legacy organization. So Vera's 62 years old. And at that at that time, it was 52 years old. And it was best known in our space for uh, incubating nonprofits. And there are close to 20 nonprofits in New York City that are the progeny of Vera. And one of the board members said, we need more of that. We need that special sauce to be able to run uh, you know, demonstrations and spin them off as nonprofits. And that was truly the pride of the organization. And I tried to delicately respond that I was so proud of that legacy, had been part of that legacy, but that it wasn't clear to me 
in the future that if we were going to address mass incarceration and overcriminalization, which are policy problems, that incubating nonprofits was the right approach to go. And that I thought that our special sauce was probably going to have to be a different kind of sauce. You know, that's how I thought about my entry into the into the organization and, and what I thought might be uh, that there needed to be some change. But again, I think the, the search committee, because they, they had known me and many of them had seen me work in the organization for close to a decade, I think trusted that I wouldn't do violence to it. And so you had taken on this job literally having just come from philanthropy. I think you were a Rockefeller, I think. And by the way, I have never worked on the philanthropy side. I've never worked on the foundation side. All of us who have never worked on that side, somehow we believe that's the promised land, like lots of resources, great new computers every two years, um, good life work balance, et cetera. So this is how we envision it. It might not be true. So please, please don't shatter our bubble if it's not true. But my question is, so you now come into the Vera Institute of Justice what was your general philosophy on restricted versus unrestricted money when you first started at Vera Institute of Justice as their president? Well, you know, I think my general philosophy or perspective was it's better to have unrestricted money because unrestricted money, obviously, I'm a, no, I'm speaking to a sophisticated podcast host and audience, you know, enables mission independence. But I also came into the role without a complete understanding of how Vera had so little unrestricted revenue. So I'll tell you a quick story about that, that in the the first year when I was able to do a a more detailed um, budget analysis, uh, what I learned was that we had over 120 different funding sources and more than 95% of them were restricted. The only source, the only real source of unrestricted revenue was uh, a fairly meager annual giving campaign at the end of the year and then an event. And so for a $50 million organization, which was the size of the organization at that time, we had about $115,000 in unrestricted revenue available to me at that moment. I quickly realized that I was handcuffed to do anything new. Um, and I, I hadn't seen that um, clearly until I got into the building. And, and if I can also just add, and I know a lot of executive directors find them in the, themselves in this place, you also kind of became a prisoner of your funders. You know, so if your funders are like, oh, this is what you're going to do, this is how you're going to do it, you have very little flexibility because you don't have your own money. Well, that's absolutely right. I mean, that's, you know, with 95% of the money being tied up with, uh, you know, donor intent. And I, you know, I want to be clear that a lot of that intent was obviously shaped through negotiation of of grants and so often reflected the good ideas that emerged from us and were representative of work that we really wanted to do but at the end of the day what what we weren't was an organization that was stepping back and saying what is our highest and best purpose we need to make choices of what we're going to work on and what we're not going to work on and then we need to organize our resources around those choices and direct our our resources to most effectively execute on that strategy. And we didn't ask ourselves that that question. And so that was something that I immediately recognized was going to have to change. I think I didn't realize how long it would take to change. So let's talk about that change and, and how you got the ball rolling. Well, you know, the first thing that I had to do 
and I'm I'm really grateful for some advice that I got from a mentor was that that in my first year I had inherited a deficit and it wasn't entirely clear when I stepped in the door whether that was a structural deficit or whether it was something that we would make up in the course of the year but I you know immediately started fundraising you know perhaps a few months into my my time and the piece of advice that I got from a mentor who was at a foundation was clean up that deficit and then come back and ask me for unrestricted money. And the reason that he made that suggestion was that he said, from my perspective as a funder, what I don't want to do is just fill a hole. Um, I don't want to know that this money that should be giving you mission independence and the ability to do new things and to innovate is just going to uh, close a deficit. And it was great ad advice. And that friend ended up and mentor ended up actually engineering a, a larger grant down the road that was un, unrestricted. So that was the very first step that I, I took. I went out there to try to raise uh, money. I took that advice that was given to me seriously. And then I turned my attention to, to closing the deficit and which turned out to be structural. And then after that, in my second year, I was able to go out to funders and say, here's some of the hard decisions that we've made, showing that we can be financially responsible and that we can manage expenses and that we are now lean and in fighting shape. And if you give us unrestricted resources, then we'll be able to transform that into, into the change that we want to make rather than um, just reducing a deficit or, or closing it. I'll share with you, I felt a little sad during part of that story. <laughs> I felt really sad during during those those months as well. So uh, when, when I hear, okay, it was structural and we made changes, what I hear is maybe you all scaled back in some ways. And I'm sure that was a difficult thing to do. It was a difficult thing to do. That meant eliminating a number of positions and that has implications for you know, for human beings. So to take on that responsibility is something that's another, another piece of advice that I was given was you should never love doing that, but you should always know that you may have to and as an executive director. And so to hold those two, those, those two things in tension. At the end of the day, it ended up being one of the most important things that, you know, that we could do is that I was able to be strategic about how we made those decisions. And that enabled us to, to really come forward with a clean slate and relieved an anxiety that I think a lot of funders rightly or wrongly feel that a rookie leader in a nonprofit may not have the management chops or the courage to make hard decisions. And so it enabled me to be able to relieve that anxiety that might have otherwise been floating around in the room, but for that one piece of advice. And I think of it as being a really essential chapter, you know, in my leadership career and, and a, a piece of advice that I've given other mentees, which is to sort of get your house in order as much as possible and to show that you have the ability to make difficult decisions and and that that is that's something that people will always be wondering about you 
And so at this point, I guess you're probably two, two and a half years into the job. You've been there about 10 years. So you're two, two and a half years in the job. You feel like your house is in order and you're in lean fighting shape. Even then, like some foundations have gotten a lot better in the last few years saying, oh, we're very open, unrestricted. But I know if you're going to philanthropists or, or some foundations, they're hesitant to offer unrestricted funding because they have concerns about accountability. So even though your house was in order and you were in pretty good fighting shape, how did you kind of counter some of that hesitancy? Well, we decided what we needed to do in order to counter the the hesitancy and to channel what we hoped would be generosity in the right places was that rather than just asking for, you know, a, a bucket of unrestricted money, we organized a campaign and essentially called it a, the campaign for criminal justice reform and set a goal of raising uh, $50 million. And we essentially created three different tranches of what we would do with unrestricted money. We said that we would first invest in impact, that we had identified a number of what we thought were high value bodies of work to, to launch and to sustain, and that we would take half of that money and put it to that impact. We would then invest in the future of the organization and build Vera's then pretty meager uh, endowment, our board designated fund, to a level that would better sustain the organization in, in the, the future and uh, in the longer term. And then we'd take a, a tenth of that money and we would invest in what I call deferred maintenance, the systems that we had not updated the technology that we needed uh, in a greater communications infrastructure. And we wrote a case that really reflected what I saw as the priorities for the next three years. And it gave enough for funders to wrap their arms around, to appreciate both that there was work that we could do to make a real difference, but that they could also invest in the institution. And so some funders came into it and, and did give unrestricted resources. But others said, um, you know, I, I'm looking at this in an a la carte way. <laughs> and I like menu item A. Can I give you a, a million dollars for that? Yes, you can. I like menu item B. We'd like to make our contribution in, in that regard. So it wasn't all unrestricted, but it was it was organized around a vision for the future of the institution, future transformation of the criminal legal system. And I think that shape helped move folks that might have otherwise been reluctant to move if I hadn't been clear about where that money would go and, and if I hadn't articulated a vision uh, that was necessary. So using that menu restaurant metaphor, did you have any funders that said, I want to fund menu item B, this delicious impossible burger, but I don't want to fund the ketchup or the mustard, or the bottom half of the bun? Sure. How did you respond? As long as it was on the menu, that meant that it was a manifestation of, of our vision and a manifestation of mission independence. It was what we had arrived at, what we needed to do for two or three years. So I was okay with that. There was one funder who gave a substantial amount of money, one-fifth of what we raised, and said, I want to put this all to the future of the organization. You want to raise $20 million for the board designated fund for the endowment. I want to put $10 million to that, but I want it to be a match. Mm. And so you need to find 
another 10 million in order to hit the goal. And I wasn't sure that we could actually do that. It wasn't clear to me that we would get enough unrestricted money to move to, you know, to raise it for the endowment um, or that anyone else would be interested in directing their money that way. But it turned out we were able to. So we absolutely had to deal with specific interests of donors, but it worked out. I want to say, Dolph, that I, you know, all of this occurred 2016, 17 or so. And that was a moment in time when there were so many new funders coming into the criminal legal system and immigration um, system space. It was a it was a moment in time in this country I sometimes slightly snidely refer to as the the golden age of criminal justice reform when everyone was enthusiastic about it and everyone wanted a piece of it. And so there were many new organizations being formed, lots of resources pouring into the space. So there was a wave that we were able to, to really, really surf. And, and I think if I'm honest with myself, well, I'm very proud of the way in which we've transformed this organization and that initial campaign that we ran it was really only possible because of the very particular moment that we were in, that we were capturing momentum and enthusiasm for the work and a, and a growing sense in the American public and among the donor class that these systems that had for decades and decades and decades been burdening and harming people, that they finally saw it. And they were like, that's something that we want to fix. Yeah, got it. So, Nick, I am so sorry to go back to the impossible burger metaphor but it's just, it's killing me. So I have to go back to oh, it. Go for it. Because, okay, so I understand if it's on the menu, okay, you can get it. But in this case, the Impossible Burger is on the menu, not not the Impossible Burger with half a bun and no mustard and ketchup. Um, and so, and so, like, I almost think if we were to extend that metaphor, perhaps your funders have not done this, but I've seen other funders that will, that will slice and dice in this way. You know, for example, you know, if a funder were to say, okay, we're going to pay for this staff person, but you know what, your retirement's too generous. We're, we're not going to, we're not going to pay for the retirement or, you know what, we're not going to pay for paid time off for this person. We're only going to pay for the time they actually work. Like, have you experienced that? And if so, how have you dealt with it? Yes, we, we have ex- experienced that. And, and um, I remember from my first run at Vera, not as the intern, Nick, but as the young professional, that we often accepted grants uh, where donors imposed uh, a limitation on indirect costs. Mm -hmm. Our indirect cost rate was something around, I don't know, maybe 19% or something like that. But there were there were funders, both government and then private philanthropy that would sometimes limit it. There were government institutions that would limit the indirect cost to 5%. When you said 19%, I also know that we have friends who are listening who are like, I'd love to get 19% because yeah, they're getting the 5% to 9%. Sorry. Yeah. No, I mean, and and in those circumstances, we often had to just take it and grin and, and grin and bear it. And that that was in an era when, you know, I just spoke to you about the, you know, the the golden era of criminal justice reform. The the non-golden era was one when there were very few funders. There were very few institutional funders. There were not a lot of people who were in tune with the notion. And so we really had to scramble to, you know, to raise money. And so we didn't have a lot of leverage. And so we we often uh made choices and had to make choices that 
uh, to accept those limitations. However, one of the things that I uh, learned in that process, but I definitely learned it when I was sitting on, a, you know, as a philanthropist, was that you could work with your program officers if you could explain to them. So rather than just take it and say, okay, thank you very much. We will take that and, um, and we're going to take the hit. And you could explain to them why your 19% indirect cost rate was important as a matter of institutional and operational excellence or what the impact of that would be, you know, that it would mean that other people would be paying the freight that they were failing to pay, but it would also harm the effectiveness of the organization. We often saw two things happen. One is that with a particular funder, we actually got a, a blanket waiver from that requirement where they said, okay, we will not, will not apply it to you going forward. That took a lot of conversation and going up the, you know, going up the hierarchy, but it was worth it because they funded a number of different things we did. And then there were other funders who said, okay, well, let me help you figure out how to make that case. You have packed a bunch of things into your line for indirect cost. What if you break them out and directly, so they sit on the budget as direct charges. And so they literally walked us through and, uh, you know, uh, uh, I, I know that you have an audience that's sort of like, oh, yeah, I know, I, I, I get that. Well, I've, had to, I've had to do that. But they literally walked us through how to construct the budget and the narrative that would enable us to reduce the indirect costs. And then whatever that gap was that we had reduced, have them on the budget as direct costs. And then that would be acceptable to the grant administrators. So the lesson from that is took me a while to learn it, but the lesson from that is be forthright, be clear about why it's important and, you know, and always have the the hard conversation with, with your funders and you discover that they are, are willing to, to, to bend and to work with you. So it's interesting. I've had a very similar experience with government grants. I do a lot of interims and I've often been able to sit down with the program officer you know, at, at a government agency and say, hey, w which of these costs can we actually move over to a direct cost? Again, you know, we know we'll have to show documentation, et cetera. It's different from indirect. And and I've had a very similar experience where they will spend hours with us, literally going through and going, okay, yeah, this one we could squeeze in, this one we can't, but do you have some other expense similar to it? Um, and it is incredibly helpful. So I'm, I'm grateful for that reminder, you know, for us all to make sure we talk with, our, we have that open line of communication with our program officers. That couldn't be more true, Dolphin. I and it's really what I try to encourage um, colleagues and others, you know, colleagues here at Vera and then outside of Vera. Sometimes we tend to be so cowed by the power dynamics and the grantor-grantee relationship that we're quick to acquiesce and and accede to to everything. And in fact, those very specific, robust problem-solving conversations are, uh, my experience has been, are generally quite valued by program officers. And so I always encourage both myself and others to like push and, and have them. So my last question on this topic, do you anticipate there's going to be a large shift so that unrestricted funding becomes more of a norm for many of the big, larger funders? Well, if, if I were to go back in the time machine around the summer of 2020, when we were seeing from some very prominent 
funders, Ford Foundation uh, with their build program, and a number of others, particularly in the summer after George Floyd had been murdered, making a, a commitment to unrestricted giving. And then also coupled with the pandemic and appreciating the distress that that put a lot of nonprofits in, so really doubling down on that commitment. The Nick Turner of that summer of 2020 was like, okay, this is definitely a trend. We're going to see more of it. You know, we were seeing some big foundations, you know, really do extraordinary things, create bonds in order to be able to grant more money. So innovative, generous, not responding to the financial challenges of that moment with their own restrictions. The Nick Turner of 2023 acknowledges that that trend has continued, but the but it hasn't been nearly as powerful as I thought it would be. And there indeed have been some followers, and I don't have real numbers, but if I were to say, if someone had asked me back then, well, you know, what percentage of philanthropic money do you think would come in as unrestricted? I would say, I don't know, you know, 50% could be what we would expect. And I would say it's probably been, you know, an increase of 10% and not an increase of 50%. Don't use those as real numbers, but just as a indication of the degree of change. So I think that there has been less change than anticipated. I'm speaking mostly about institutional funders as opposed to individuals. I find that individuals are are generally more inclined to um, give in an unrestricted way. And why do you think we've not seen that avalanche of change? Well, it tracks back to my own experience in, in philanthropy, which is this might sort of aid in disabusing you of the fantasy of philanthropy that that you have, which is that in philanthropy, we all have bosses. You know, if you're a program officer, you know, you're reporting to a president or to a vice president and the president, you know, has had to articulate a strategy to the board and then the board feels that it's important to hold the institution accountable to that strategy. And then that gets more particularized and specific and well, what are the elements of that strategy and well we have you know three elements you know a policy strand and a practice strand and a research strand and we think that over five years x is going to happen we're looking at milestones and we're serious about outcomes and so you know i mean i'm describing you know this concept of strategic philanthropy which is certainly what i experienced at rockefeller and I think that that inclination to be accountable and to make highest and best use of a donor's resources or of the endowment, you know, is what drives philanthropy, mostly institutional philanthropy, again, to be more directive and to be more assertive in articulating its own strategy because they're holding themselves accountable. Some people can be really negative and say, oh, that's just people in philanthropy who are just trying to make excuses for their jobs. They're just trying to justify the jobs they have. So they're creating work. They're making work. I think that's too extreme and, it, and it's negative. I do think that people are actually trying to, and institutions are trying to do the right thing. They are trying to achieve outcomes. I think the failure in that is that it overprivileges the perspective of people in philanthropy that are often detached from the facts and the evidence that you need in order to make a really informed, to devise a really informed strategy. 
and you're detached from it because you know you might be sitting in a in an office tower somewhere but you're also detached from it because of the power dynamics of your relationships which is that it's really hard to ground truth your strategy because most people who are coming to you uh, are in need of resources and so they tend to you know that strategy makes a ton of sense let me tell you how we fit into it and you know to try to have a frictionless interaction with you so there's distortion that exists in the philanthropic world that i think people in philanthropy often don't see and then all of the questions about strategy and accountability and so on um can fuel a tendency to be skeptical of grantees sometimes and to to do the opposite of being trusting of leadership and leadership's abilities. I mean, remember what I just said, of, you know, at the outset of our discussion about how, you know, the work that I had to do to close a structural deficit, it answered the question that I knew was hanging around, but didn't have to be, didn't have to be asked. And it endowed me with a credibility and enabled people to trust that I could run the organization and make difficult decisions. So anyway, that's all a really long way of saying that, you know, that I do think that there are well-intentioned reasons for funders being inclined to be directive, but it goes too far. And the important thing is that it, the move towards trust-based philanthropy is better, both because the recipients are closer to the ground and have a closer assessment of the facts and evidence and what needs to be done and what is responsive to community societal needs. And that the mission independence of being able to make judgments about how to pursue those outcomes uh, matters, it matters a great deal. Well, thank you, Nick. And I will also say, I appreciate an inside nuanced look at what happens behind the golden curtain of philanthropy. So thank you. I, and I genuinely mean that. I appreciate that. Thank you. So I will share with you, I do have a an off-the-map question burning in my pocket right now. I understand that you happen to know future president, I mean, Senator Cory Booker from law school. So my burning question is, what's what's Senator Booker like? So I, I know Senator Booker from our, our time together at law school. I was uh, his Black Law Students Association big brother. He was in the class below me. And uh, people may not believe this, but the Cory Booker that you see, television or in events or the many uh, places where he stops on his calendar, and this is a you know a person who is has almost overflowing passion. He's a genuine positiveness that manifests as in hugs and saying that he loves folks and that we should be organized around all the affirmative human characteristics of love and healing and goodness, which I think in this political environment maybe scans for some people as being um, guileless. But that that is the real Cory. That is the real Cory Booker. Cory Booker is at the end of the day, one of the most integrated people that I've seen. His professional attributes, what we see of him as a public person, is no different than what I have seen of him over the three decades that I've known him as a friend. What you get and what you see is exactly who he is. That is good to hear. That's what I was hoping you were going to say, so thank you. Uh, and, and Nick, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I'm grateful that you shared your own story as well as how your story intersects with 
the case for unrestricted funding and how we do that inside our organizations and with our funders. So thank you. Thank you, Dolph. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk with you and I'm a fan. All right, friends. You know, I always want to make sure you're able to reach out to our guest. And so if you want to know more about Nick or Nick's work at the Vera Institute of Justice, you can go to their Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, or Mastodon pages. And we are going to link to all of that at our show notes, SuccessfulNonprofits.com. If you say to yourself, Dolph, I type SuccessfulNonprofits.com too much into my search bar, and I just, I already feel like I go there too much, then go directly to the Vera Institute of Justice's website at Vera. Org. That's V-E-R-A dot org. And when you visit their website, you can sign up for the newsletter. You can check out their blog. They also have lots of interactive tools and data tools. And you definitely want to check out their report, The New Paradigm for Sentencing in the United States. It offers a very important perspective on the evidence surrounding sentencing's impact on safety. It offers new guiding principles for sentencing legislation that privilege liberty. And what's more, it outlines seven key sentencing reforms that are critical if we are going to make change. So friends, again, make sure you check out vera.org. And if you liked this episode, if you got something out of it, there's two more that I want you to think about downloading. The first is episode 170 with Sherry Quam taylor Challenging the Fundraising Status Quo. And the second is episode 279, Standing Up for Equitable Funding Practices with Laura Steiner. And always, my friend, if you will please rate and review this podcast, it would be a huge favor. Literally, just open up your phone, go inside whatever podcast streaming you're listening to this through, and click five stars or four stars or hopefully whatever the most number of stars your streamer has got. That is our episode for the week. I hope that you have gained some insight to help you and your nonprofit thrive. And you know, the lawyers make me do a disclaimer every single time and I'm tired of doing it. So now I try to do it in a more interesting way. Have you ever tried to use a hammer to cut bread? Well, let me tell you, that's like asking me to give you tax, legal, or accounting advice. It's not going to work. It's not what you want because I'm not an accountant nor an attorney. All right, it's fun to imagine cutting bread with a hammer, but it's not very effective. If you're looking for the real deal, if you're looking for legal, tax, or accounting advice, please find a licensed professional and get the counsel you need.